Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Our food systems account for a third of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, and that reality has led many to rethink their relationship with food. Across the U.S., Americans are adapting to lessen their environmental footprint. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Coming up, an indigenous ethnobotanist shares lessons to be more respectful of nature. And we'll hear how environmental racism is preventing access to fresh food in Connecticut cities. But first, a growing number of people are looking to the dumpsters for their next meal. And although this can often break local law, many see dumpster diving as a necessary and effective way to both save money and reduce food waste. William Reed is a filmmaker and creator of the 2017 film Trash Empire. He spent over $5 on food over the course of two years by diving in dumpsters. William, welcome to Disrupted. Hi, thanks for having me. You are the creator of a film called Trash Empire, and you document your experience as a food waste expert, but really what it meant to only spend $5.50 on food over two years. I'm blown away by that number. Talk to us about how you even got started in dumpster diving. Yeah, so when I got started on that film, I definitely wasn't a food waste expert. It kind of happened through the experience of working on that film and dumpster diving. And I got sucked into this because um, I was an organizer. I still am an organizer for an organization called Food Not Bombs. And we get food that would otherwise be thrown away. We get it donated to us. And then we cook that and get it to people in need. And while I was volunteering there, um, I met folks who had talked about dumpster diving and it sounded like this really interesting thing. And somebody took me dumpster diving and we went to a dumpster that was full to the brim of just cucumbers. I've never seen so many cucumbers in my life. And uh, yeah, that had a major impact on me. Um, it got me thinking, you know, I wonder if somebody could survive this way. And at the time, I was in grad school studying film, and I needed a thesis project. And that's what led to this idea of Trash Empire. So you were introduced in terms of someone saying, here's a place to start. But for the average person, how do they choose a place to go? And how do you know that the food that you are consuming is safe to eat. Yeah. So what I always say is if somebody's curious about dumpster diving, wanting to try it, or if they're just interested in this as an issue, it's just really as simple as exploring your neighborhood and opening dumpsters and looking inside. It, it, I always imagined there was some huge learning curve, but uh, it's really intuitive. You know, it's kind of a, uh, an exploration or, or even a treasure hunt. And, you know, you kind of have to go daily because one particular dumpster isn't necessarily going to have 
quality food in it every time you look. But, you know, if a dumpster is consistently not having good food, it's the wrong dumpster. You know, th this will sound probably strange to your, your listeners, but, you know, there are places, there are quality dumpsters, and then there are bad dumpsters. So in terms of getting sick or, or knowing if the food is good or bad, we have a, a lot of wonderful senses. We're able to kind of tell if food is going good, uh, bad or whatever. Obviously, we can't see bacteria and things of that nature, but I, I am always more concerned about factory level contamination than the fact that the food was placed in the dumpster. A lot of this food is placed in the dumpster still in that original packaging. You know, the seal is not broken. If you go to a place regularly, you kind of understand what time they throw it out so you can even get it while it's still cold. So really, we're just talking about it being stored in a particular place. But on the factory level, you know, we see all the time food recalls and things like that. And that's that's really where I would always have my concern. So when some people hear about dumpster diving, they may think of scraps and trash in a dumpster. But you have said that's not always the case. So what was your diet like when you were exclusively dumpster diving? Yeah, so I had access to the same food you have now that, like, you know, now at grocery stores and things of that nature. In fact, before I started this project, you know, I was a grad student. I only worked part time. I did not have a lot of extra spending money. So I was eating kind of the low quality food that you might expect. Once I started dumpster diving and started finding those good dumpsters, I was dumpster diving organic food. I was drinking liters and liters of kombucha. I mean, these things that I would have never purchased prior because it was too expensive. So when people think of food waste, they either usually are thinking of kitchen scraps thrown out at a restaurant. You know, I'm not interested in dumpster diving that. I, I don't think I know anyone who really is. Or they're thinking of something like ugly fruits and vegetables. These are the two extremes. So either they imagine it's all wonderful or it's all bad. It's a spectrum and you can find all of that waste. And this is something that I think is really important to, to kind of keep in consideration, especially as people talk about donation, for example, you know, not all of this food is necessarily suitable for donation. You know, you don't want to dump tons of junk food on people in need. But, you know, my diet, I had access to all of this. I had access to the temptation of junk food. I definitely ate a lot of junk food. But I also had access to that healthy uh, fruits and vegetables. And it became so easy that after doing this for over a year, I decided to make it more challenging. And I moved to a strictly vegan diet from the dumpster. And so that was totally feasible. Prior to that, I was even eating meat. I know that that probably sends alarm bells off in some of your listeners' minds. But again, if you know when the food is being thrown out and it's still cold and you cook it well, you know, it's generally um, just as safe as going to the grocery store. 
There is a lot of social stigma surrounding dumpster diving that, you know, we often have this image of someone coming into a neighborhood or coming into a business and taking these things away. And we make judgments about the people who are doing that. Did you ever encounter that? Were you uncomfortable letting people know that this is what you were doing in order to have, as you said, lots of options in your diet? Or were you able to escape some of that? Yeah. So when I got started, the first five months where I was exclusively dumpster diving, I, I didn't tell anyone. This was my secret. It was just between me and the dumpster. But it, it just started to really press on me that this is a huge environmental issue. And this is working so well for me. There's no way that I can't tell people about this and you know, ring those alarm bells that our food system is structured in a way that intends to cause waste. So I started telling people and yeah, there was definitely pushback and it was uncomfortable sometimes. You know, my mom at first, when, when I told her about this, she was mortified, right? Uh, she was really worried about my health and safety because she was a good mom, right? But uh, as she started to understand that I was eating good quality food and, and uh, you know, really making a point here, she, she became very proud of it. She worked at a university, was telling anyone who would listen about it. And the same thing happened at work. I, I would bring bags and bags of candy. For example, after Halloween, when they changed the packaging, suddenly they throw away all that candy because you know, the consumer mindset thinks, oh, you know, this stuff has ghosts on it and it's not Halloween anymore. Therefore, it's bad. I mean, obviously that's crazy, but it gets thrown out. So at first, my coworkers, some of them ate it, but most of them didn't. But with time, all of my coworkers started eating the uh, quote trash that I was bringing in. So there will always be somebody who has a problem with this or who imagines it to be something that it's not, you know, that's okay. They can think what they want, but most people, when they really start to understand this issue, eventually come around. Thinking about what you just said about the packaging, that it doesn't matter if it's a ghost on it or a, a holiday bell on it, it's the same candy. But how we respond to things based on what we see is so critical. But that also makes me think, William, how we see people often shapes our response to what we value, but also the value we attribute to them. Do you think your experience would be different if you were, say, a person of color engaging in this? Would you have been able to do it at your will without having interference? I think that's a, a really good point. And, you know, I am a white man, and I think that definitely has shaped my experience with dumpster diving. While I worked on this project and, as well, and while I advocate for coping with food waste, I never tried to tell people that they ought to do what I did because my experience there was my experience in the dumpster. And it's not necessarily going to be the same. I think for sure it's totally reasonable to assume that if I had been a person of color, I would have had the police called on me. I would have faced more pushback. I mean, I did have some managers of grocery stores tell me to leave or, 
or whatever, but usually it was very positive. They were just saying, hey, I don't care. Just don't leave a mess. No problem. But interestingly, the only time I ever encountered a police officer was a time when I was dumpster diving with a person of color. That was the only time I ever saw a police officer. And they came by and shined a light on us. And then they drove away. So I think you could reasonably ask, did the police show up because one of us was not white? And did, then you could ask, did they leave because they saw that I was white? I think that's totally a reasonable question to ask, especially when you talk about in the city and, and you know the long history of policing. Yeah, my experience, I think, would be totally different from that of a person of color. There will be people listening to this conversation who may say, dumpster diving just isn't for me. For the reasons that you mentioned that can be more complicated for who people are or where they are, the access that they have, especially given the proliferation of food deserts in particular neighborhoods. So they may say, dumpster diving isn't the thing that I want to do. But I'm very concerned about food waste and the impact of the choices that we make on on our environment today, but also in the future. What advice would you give to people who want to address that problem, whether as consumers and residents or as store owners and manufacturers? What's the advice? Well, it's hard because these are all interrelated issues. The issues, uh, you know, you mentioned um, food deserts. Dumpsters totally reflect the environments that they're in. When I worked on this project, I lived in a wealthier neighborhood. Hence my access to good food waste. Now I live in a food desert. I can dumpster dive and I can find things, but it's more going to be heavily processed things unless produce. And when I do find produce, it's further along in that aging process. So the the dumpster is kind of an interesting space because yes, it highlights food waste, but it also highlights that lack of access on the basis of race or class and things like that. And as, as we know, politicians and industry don't always listen. In fact, they frequently don't. But there are a lot of interesting things happening on the local level regarding food waste and agriculture. And in fact, I would say local initiatives are where the most exciting things are happening in this space. So, you know, we've got a a lot of urban farms popping up. I am here in DC. There's a lot of that going on. And there's a lot of people advocating and getting organized around these issues. This is a great space to get involved in. And, and again, the local level, even in terms of legislation that addresses food waste, that's where the best legislation has been happening over the last five years or so in terms of creating additional tax incentives for donations, but specifically tax incentives that say, we'll give you money for wholesome fruits and vegetables. We're not going to do it if you're just donating junk food. On the federal level right now, if I donate junk food, the government treats it the same as wholesome fruits and vegetables. That's obviously not something that we want. And they've been very unsuccessful in changing that. But the local level, that's where it's happening. So I would always tell people, 
some of this stuff is is going to take a long time to fix if we're realistic, uh, unless we get organized. But the best place to start is locally and working with people in your community. I appreciate that reminder that there's so much power at the local level and our opportunity collectively to make a difference. William Reed is a food waste expert and he's creator of the film Trash Empire. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. When we come back, we'll hear from an EPA fellow and activist on how she's fighting food insecurity in urban areas. And a professor and member of the Blackfeet tribe in Montana shares how we can use native plants to combat climate change. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Long before European colonizers arrived in America, indigenous communities shared a symbiotic relationship with the natural world. Farming and large-scale agriculture were frequently used, but our next guest says native communities protected natural lands and they preserved access to those spaces for generations to come. So how do we use those lessons to inform our food decisions today. Dr. Rosalind Lapierre is an ethnobotanist and environmental studies professor at the University of Montana. She's also an enrolled member of the Blackfeet tribe. Dr. Lapierre, welcome to Disrupted. Oh, thank you for inviting me today. I look forward to our conversation. So I, I have to start by saying for our listeners, you are the first member of your tribe to be a tenured professor at the University of Montana. That is a major accomplishment to earn tenure at any point, but particularly because of all of the ways in which higher education has overlooked the contributions of indigenous people. But what's also interesting is that your work in botany predates your time as a professor. How does your identity as an indigenous woman inform the work that you do and also your understanding of native food systems? So I think that I'm very fortunate to have been born both as a woman um, and as an indigenous woman. And, you know, I think that it is something for those of us who grow up in BIPOC communities um, we're often told that our role in society is both comes with both you know privileges and responsibilities, and especially those of us who become educated then have a, a larger sort of responsibility that we carry with us. And it's something that our elders tell us from kind of the day that we're born that that is our role in society. But you know, I've always thought that I was very fortunate to be born into the family I was born into. Um, I was very fortunate to be raised by the women that I was raised by. Um, I was very fortunate to be able to um, learn from my grandmother and learn from my oldest aunt about the ethnobotany of the Blackfeet people. Um, and I'm really fortunate now to be able to share that both on a public platform within a university setting or just giving public, doing public programming, but also now sharing that knowledge with my 
um, my own daughters and my nieces. Um, and so the knowledge of my grandmothers will continue to be carried on um, into the future. And um, it's something, again, that I see as, you know, a privilege that I was born into. You've mentioned learning from the women in your family, those elders, and honoring their traditions and honoring their presence in your life, but also sharing that experience with the next generation being your daughters. And as an educator, you share that wisdom with generations of young people who may not have that same family experience, but can now learn from that. How important is it for you to continue that tradition and in particular, thinking about the role of food and food systems for members of your tribe? I wear a couple of different hats. Let me start by saying that. So I work uh, at the University of Montana as a professor, but I also work for a community-based organization called Sokio Heritage. Um, and between the two different places and platforms, I'm able to share different types of information with different communities. So with Sokio Heritage, we do a lot of public programming on the Blackfeet Reservation, um, where we bring together primarily women, but not always women, um, and also people who identify with womanhood. So we do have two-spirit people who don't identify by Western ideas of gender norms, but indigenous um, ways instead. But we do a lot of public programming where we bring people together and gather to learn about, you know, indigenous ways of knowing. And one of the things, like I said earlier, you know, I feel very privileged to be from the family that I'm from, but I recognize that not all people, even in my own community, come from those kinds of families with that type of knowledge. And so it is important to gather people together and to do workshops. You know, we do public workshops on Blackfeet food systems, Blackfeet ways of healing and health. And we bring together um, folks from the community. We go out into the field um, and we hike about and uh, teach people about, you know, native plant knowledge and food systems and, and food knowledge. And then at the University of Montana, you know, I'm privileged to work with a, a wide variety of students who are from all over the United States. I'm in the environmental studies department, and we have students from all over the United States and sometimes internationally um, who come to the University of Montana um, because they are interested in learning about the world that we live in, um, how to establish different kinds of relationships with the natural world, how to begin to uh, think about health and healing in a different way, and not just individual sort of health and healing of our physical bodies, but also health and healing to the environment and the world around us, um, and how to think about how we can be actors and not necessarily just reactors to the changes that we see happening in the world. You are a leader and an educator in multiple spaces. And part of what connects all of those spaces together is this emphasis on respect for and reverence for the land. That if we respect the land, the land provides all that we need. And sometimes we have to be still and listen and center in that. Given that perspective, why do you think it's so important to understand foraging and to understand it as something that connects us to land, to tradition, to healing, 
and not sort of these westernized views of what the land is supposed to do for us, but more about what we do for it. Yeah, and I think you hit on, uh, you know, a really good point here, which is, you know, one of the ways that people and especially young people are thinking about reestablishing this relationship with the natural world is how do we think of that relationship as not extraction, right? So we have, especially in the United States, you know, we have this long history of extracting natural resources from our natural world and viewing our relationship with the natural world as one of a commodity. And one of the things that young people are interested in, and and not just young people, but I think all people interested in reestablishing this relationship is beginning to think of the natural world, not just as a place of extraction, not just a place that it's a commodity, but also thinking about that the natural world also has needs of its own and that we need to think of it as a reciprocal relationship and not just a kind of a one-sided relationship where we go to take things. And I think that one of the things that we do need to be careful about when we talk about, you know, foraging or we talk about harvesting and gathering of food plants, particularly, but also medicinal plants that are in the natural world is to think about it as a reciprocal relationship and not extractive. Because I think we can easily slip back in to that American culture that we all grew up in, that American culture of viewing many things through that kind of, again, the commodification or even capitalism that we have in our society today of trying to reestablish that relationship and think of it more reciprocal so that while we are harvesting or gathering or foraging, that we are also putting back into those places and we are managing them carefully in ways that they are made productive and that are, again, of benefit to that natural world and not just of benefit to human society. There is a power in language to convey position, but to also convey connection. And so I like your emphasis on harvesting because it does affirm that reciprocal relationship but it also forces us to consider what our role is in the choices that we make. And one of the things that gives me concern when we talk about this area is the notion of you know, cultural appropriation, of people thinking, I've heard about this for medicinal purposes, or I've heard about this for healing purposes, and that's not my tradition, but maybe I can pull elements from it. How do you fight back against that as harvesting becomes more well-known, as it you know, spreads across in terms of who is involved? How do we maintain that relationship? Well, I think there's a couple of different ways that people can think about this. You know, on the one hand, you know, no matter where you are in the United States, you know, you are on indigenous land. You are on somebody's indigenous land. And so one way to approach this is to learn about the place that you're at, learn about the indigenous people who are from that place and and learn about it again, not as an extraction of knowledge, but to what extent you can be respectful of learning about the place and the people and also be reciprocal. So one of the ways that you can be reciprocal, I think, is to work on projects where you're restoring the land and the landscape 
to have more native plants in areas, to return particular areas, to have it look like the way it looked like before colonization. And that doesn't mean that you're returning a landscape to quote unquote, air quotes here, the wild, um, because there really was not that concept of the wild when indigenous people were in these places because indigenous people always cultivated and managed um, these landscapes because they harvested them. And so indigenous people either had communities that were agricultural or they were harvesting from the landscape and you know, either having cultivated and domesticated plants or they were using plants that are not domesticated that we, again, we call them wild, right, plants, but really they were plants that were still being managed and management was done on a lot of different levels. So one way to kind of tap into this knowledge system is to, again, you know, be respectful, learn about the place that you live, learn about the indigenous people who are from there. And again, don't think of it as extraction, but think of it as, you know, reciprocal, respectful relationship. The other thing, that people can do is to tap into their own, you know, ethnicity. So, you know, where, no matter where you are from, even if you're indigenous, you know, you can, for, so for example, right now, I'm, I live on the homelands of the Salish peoples, right? I'm not Salish. I'm from the other side of the mountains, but I live most of the year um, on Salish homelands. But no matter where you're at, you know, you can also tap into your own family history, your own family heritage, and into that learning about the, you know, knowledges and the knowledge systems that come from your own family heritage. And if you are from any place around the world, you can bring some of those plants that your family or your heritage viewed as important and you can grow them in the place that you are for the most part. So you can have a home garden, you can, you know, put them in pots, you know, on your patio. So I think that you can go about it in both ways, kind of learning about the indigenous knowledge of the place that you live or learn about your own family history and family heritage and tap into those systems of knowledge. You have also pointed out the sort of connections that bind all of us together, that even for people coming from these disparate backgrounds, disparate experiences, that notion of growing where you are planted is a part of identities and cultures across the world. And another thing that is this pervasive factor for all of us is the reality of climate change and how it is having an impact on our relationship to the natural world and the ability for indigenous communities to continue those traditions given these external threats that we have all contributed to. How do you see climate change and these threats to our natural world shaping the kinds of traditions that you've mentioned, but also the actions that we can take as individuals and communities to resist some of that? Climate change is really a large multifaceted problem that we really need to get a hold of. And as you know, in the last couple of weeks, there's been a large conference that's been happening in Scotland, which is the Committee of Parties or the COP26. And they have been talking about the impact of climate change on the world and sort of solutions. And of course, one of the major solutions they're talking about there in this particular conference is the idea of restoration. 
and the idea of restoring landscapes and the use of the land itself, but especially plants as a tool that we can use to fight back against climate change. And so I think that is an important solution that communities should be tapping into. It's not the only solution, but I think it is an important one. And so again, no matter where you are in the United States, I think that you can work towards the restoration of the land and the landscape in your community. Even if you're in a city, I live in a small town, but even within town here, um, one of the things you can do is make sure you're including native plants as part of the parks in your community. Make sure native plants are being used in people's yards. You know, we should not be spending as much money that people spend watering, fertilizing, etc., to keep Kentucky bluegrass alive on their front lawn. That's an easy fix. And again, when we're thinking about big picture issues like climate change, there are small solutions to that. And one is kind of that restoration of land and landscape, whether it's getting rid of your front lawn, starting uh, community gardens at your at your local public school, or even larger projects than that within public land and landscapes. Dr. Rosalind Lapierre is an ethnobotanist, an associate professor of environmental studies at the University of Montana, and she's an enrolled member of the Blackfeet Tribe. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. After the break, a young environmental justice activist explains how we can make our cities more environmentally friendly and healthier for all. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we're exploring the ways people access and consume food. According to data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, nearly 10% of all Connecticut residents lack access to fresh and affordable food. These food deserts are especially acute in cities like Hartford and New Haven, but our next guest is working to change that Meet Katherine Morris. Kat calls herself a scholar activist, and her work focuses on environmental justice. She recently became a sustainability fellow for the EPA. I asked Kat to explain what she means by the term scholar activist. For me, being a scholar activist means balancing my relationship with academia to my relationship with the general community because for unfortunate reasons the two are not properly linked so that means anytime i do research trying to make it based in community participants so making sure that say i have to do a study based on something that's engaging their community specifically it should be everyday people not just advanced stakeholders who are creating policies or running corporations or so on and so forth, having an input into the status of their community. Um, But it also looks like actively doing research for the goal of improving something that's lacking in the community. If I'm trying to do research, I'm going to make it focused on how to advance environmental justice rather than just how to study what's going on somewhere or how to do something that has no tangible outcome. You know, often for 
academics and, and working in that space, people are actively discouraged from engaging with community, that the goal is for you to study that community and tell them what they need. And the work that you do around environmental justice is really about listening to community and figuring out where those spaces are of overlap to empower those voices instead of dictating those voices. Talk to our listeners about what environmental justice is and how that frames your approach to being in conversation with community. Yeah, so environmental justice is basically the opposite of environmental racism. So the fact that as current structures have made it, Black, uh, Latinx, and Indigenous communities are far more likely to be exposed to environmental pollutants. So whether that be through air pollution, because their town like Bridgeport or Hartford, Connecticut, for instance, has the the largest incinerators in the state, and they are far more likely to have a lot of car pollution because there's car exhaust and you know inefficient um, public transportation to mitigate that having less access to healthy food, right? So having existing in food deserts and food swamps, right? So in Connecticut alone, we see Black and Latinx um, children are about four and five times more likely to go to the, the emergency room for an asthma attack because of uh, environmental racism. So environmental justice for me means eliminating that from our current reality. Like we've accepted these things as ways of life and uh, we don't need to, and I would rather them not be the case. So the thing is environmental justice, as you brought up, requires community input. Another activist in Connecticut, um, her name is Corinne Prescott. One thing she said to me on a panel that I was hosting um, was the people closest to the problem are closest to the solution. Like, period. Like, there's really nothing else. Like, how could you, who has no experience, tell someone what they're experiencing, first of all, and how to solve that problem? Right? It doesn't make sense. And I actively reject all forms of academia that operate in that form, which is what being a scholar activist means to me. You know, we've learned a lot over the last year, not just about the existence of these challenges, but also the ignorance or the willful ignorance toward these challenges. And as you say in your work, this is not new. We have known this. So now that people can no longer say they weren't aware that it's not just about the individual choice to eat healthy, but it's the structural access to healthy foods and to having options, What are some things that you think we should be doing right here in Connecticut right now to address some of these structural challenges in the work that you're doing? So first of all, we need to increase collective efficacy overall. How we go about doing that, that's that's multifaceted, but um, basically collective efficacy is like It refers to the ability for a community or um, a group of individuals to take control over developing their community as they see it fit, right? How, what positive changes do they wanna make? I recognize I can make those changes and I do that. That's what collective efficacy um, means to me. So first of all, increasing that. We should not have food swamps or food deserts. So a food swamp is when for every like one grocery store, there are five fast food restaurants. 
right? So that should not be the case if you want people to um, no longer have excessive rates of diabetes or other, you know, cardiovascular diseases and so on and so forth. Um, so increasing access to organic and healthy foods, that doesn't necessarily look like getting rid of all the bodegas that happen to sell, you know, unhealthier foods like junk foods and whatnot, but rather increasing their access to fresh produce to disseminate throughout their communities, right? It looks like increasing the amount of farmers markets that exist and their availability. I feel like the only farmers markets I know of in Connecticut operate from like 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. on like Wednesday. Like, <laughs> Who's that helping? Everyone's working. So doing things like that to make sure that communities have more community farms, right? And farmers markets and community gardens, rather. Guerrilla gardening, so to speak, uh, is very, it's growing out, particularly in like San Francisco and, you know, San Diego and California areas where there are a lot of like parking lots that are abandoned. There's nothing going on there. I know where there are quite a few of those in Connecticut, right? So we can transform those areas so that they are producing something that's good for our well-being rather than just maybe producing something for um, economic means. What I appreciate about your overview of that is that it shows just how interconnected and multi-layered these challenges are, that it's not enough to just say we should have healthier food options. We have to also think about the supply chain and the pricing and how that affects access and who's leading some of these efforts. You have talked about the importance of intersectionality and the importance of looking at these multiple interlocking structures that Kimberly Crenshaw talks about that can have differential outcomes for, for multiple groups. Why is intersectionality important and needed as we address some of these big issues? Yeah, for the exact reason that you put, nothing is um, separate everything's interconnected, right? And as people and populations that live together, we're entirely interconnected as well. And truly we're interdependent. I think that's something that I wanna emphasize. It's not just that, okay, we're impacted by it because we're neighbors. Like we rely on each other um, as a species, as a collective, as communities. So we cannot disregard someone else's plight. We cannot disregard someone else's experience or um, how they're oppressed in their way, their relative oppression, nor can we disregard our relative privileges when we're in addressing situations either. And so any activism that doesn't do that is really missing the mark, right? And they're missing opportunities for collaboration that to me ultimately allows for a greater rate of success, so to speak, um, when you have multiple heads working on the situation that ha come with a variety of perspectives and you're able to really value everyone's perspective, you're more likely to find a solution that doesn't leave anyone out. And you're able to be more holistic in the way you address problems because there's no like single issue society. There's no single um, challenge that is like isolated from a situation. That's what led me to form Yukon Collaborative Organizing when I was still in undergrad. Our whole point was to emphasize solidarity and intersectionality specifically, because we have various cultural centers on a predominantly white campus, yet our different cultural centers weren't collaborating as much in terms of responding to racist instances, 
but that's like reactive, but also being proactive and like, okay, well, we need to address retention rates. We need to address mental health issues on this campus. And the fact that there are like zero to three people of color who are in these fields and spaces that can help us, right? I like black therapists personally, right? Stuff like that. But also just getting a handle on how we can show up better for each other and be more proactive in making life better rather than just reacting when something bad happens. I think that makes a huge difference in overall quality of life and quality of activism. So let's talk about how we show up for ourselves and show up for other people. You gave a TEDx talk and something you said in that talk really stayed with me throughout it. And you said, we are not tethered to this course by default, but by choice. And one of the choices that you mentioned in that talk was choosing love. Explain to us how you envision love and how you see it as a glue that can inform the choices that we make to show up for each other. In that talk, I turned love into an acronym because to me, I think a lot of times when people hear love, they think just romantic. But for me, love entails responsibility and accountability as much as it entails compassion and care. So I turned it into the acronym L-O-V-E. So L, listen to learn. O, organize with an open mind. V, value a variety of perspectives. And E, engage everyone in every way possible. So again, regardless of how much experience I have in the field or the person who has 10 more years of experience than me, no single person has all the answers. So we have to actively listen to learn to people in order to be innovative and resilient in the way that we address these very deeply entrenched systemic issues in our country and world overall. So that's the L in love for me. There's O, organized with an open mind. So it's being creative as much as you're being intentional. Again, there's no single way to solve a problem. What matters is the intention behind the practice that you are engaging in. Right? You have to think outside the box, because when you don't, I feel like you end up repeating cycles. So L, listen to learn. O, organize with an open mind. And V, value a variety of perspectives. That's where intersectionality becomes very foundational for me, because we're all parts of this world. And so we all have a responsibility of taking care of the world, as well as taking care of each other. And so that means being educated on another person's struggles and educating your people because it's not, there's no longer an excuse. You have access to the existence of people's lives, right? But also we all have access to Google. So I don't think anyone barring those who have insufficient Wi-Fi access and who don't own a smartphone, there's no excuse for you to not understand how an issue works or how it's impacting people in your life or regardless of that. Someone doesn't have to be your close friend to deserve empathy, right? And then E, engage everyone in every way possible. So reaching out to folks from all walks of life, that requires being mindful of working people's time, inclusive of all forms of ability, as well as language barriers, and really kind of being proactive in your thought to a barrier. So we can't be exclusive in the fight for justice. That would be counterproductive. And it's also a luxury that movements for change cannot afford to not be as inclusive as possible in order to get that. There are a lot of challenges. There are lots of issues. They're all interconnected. 
And yet there is a hope that I hear in what you're saying and what I heard in your TEDx talk. As you look ahead to the work that's being done and the work that needs to be done, what is it that gives you hope that change will happen? I love Octavia Butler's quote, the only lasting truth is change. And I live by it. Nothing changes if nothing changes, right? With respect to justice. So the fact that I'm willing to get up and do the work to make a change and that I know without a shadow of doubt that someone will be by my side and someone will be trying to push the work further with me, that makes me believe and understand and hold dear to my heart the fact that I'm not alone in this. Um, I think that gives me hope. The fact that I know that someone will be there supporting me along the way and I will be supporting someone else along the way because it's not just me. Like I draw inspiration from so many people and I want to further their work as well. And so for as long as I can keep seeing that, I won't lose hope in the fact that change can, will always happen. It's just a matter of whether or not that change will be for the better. Catherine Morris is a sustainability fellow at the EPA. She's also an activist fighting for environmental justice. To learn more about our guests and to watch Kat's TEDx talk, you can visit our website at ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Talarski. Our interns are B. Levine and Dylan Reyes. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.